Hello and welcome to Geeksware. This is an episode being recorded during the coronavirus pandemic quarantine era. We are without our sound recordist, but at the same time, we are observing the social distancing rules and we will be recording this episode from the respective houses and locations of the presenters and our guest experts. If you're interested in finding out more about the Geeksvet project, we are available on 24 different platforms, including Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, Luminary, Himalaya, Castbox FM, Player FM, and many more besides. Please enjoy this episode. And welcome to another Geek Sweat inspirational interview. I'm King Dom, and I'm joined by my co-presenter, TJ. Howdy. And today we have a very special guest for you, a true renaissance man of modern film, I think it's fair to say. Someone who could be described as an actor, but also a DOP, a editor, and many more. It's Sean Cronin. Sean, welcome. Hello. Nice to see you. Quick slug of coffee and we're away. Thanks for joining us, Sean. It's great to have you on this episode. We've been after you or tracking you for some time. Well, the stalking has finally paid off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, we actually got clo- a lot more closer to, to you than uh, James Bond and the MI5 did. So uh, <laughs> we'd love to dip into that soon. So um, how are you doing um, to start off with? I mean, how are you keeping at the moment? Yeah, it's been, you know, crazy. It's been a uh, lockdown for me. I've been very, very lucky because I've been making, editing a feature film. So, and it hasn't really affected me apart from my kids don't go to school. So I, you know, it's, uh, they're at home rampaging around the house most of the time. But I've been, I've been very, very lucky. A lot of people have been affected much more adversely than me. But I, I, I was always going to be at home working. So, I'm fine, man. I've got a bit of a tan. I've also got a bit of a belly. Um, I've got a lockdown belly. I've been drinking too much red wine. And apparently one bottle of red wine is the equivalent of four jam donuts. So I've been having four jam donuts a night. Well, that's wow. some lockdown belly is totally a thing. Oh, yeah. that's terrible. I don't know what to do with it anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, really, it's, it's been, you know, it's, it's a crazy time for film. Uh, it's a crazy time for everybody. But, um, it's actually worked in a lot of filmmakers' favour, which I'll talk about a little bit later on. So, Sean, uh, just to familiarise uh, yourself to our audience, if they have not had a chance to see you before, could you start off by telling us about the area or the way that you grew up in in your youth? Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I was, a, I was an only child um, of a, quite a bizarre family. I've got, I've got Sicilian on one side, uh, I'm actually directly related to a, a crime family who I shouldn't really mention on online, but uh, they're one of the biggest Italian crime families. And um, uh, I've got so that's on my mother's side, and then on my father's side, um, they were Irish Spanish horse thieves. So I've got a bit of a funny, a bit of a funny background. But um, yeah, so I grew up. I was in London for most of my most of my really performative years, then we moved down to the seaside, down to Margate, which, was, which is the armpit of the universe, the okay. sphincter of the stratosphere. <laughs> uh, eventually which, I came... Which side down, of England is Margate for some of the... Near Dover, um, near, near Dover. 
So southeast England. South, southeast coast, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I came back. My grand grandfather on my mother's side was a general in the army, and I was a bit of a naughty boy at school. So in order to put me on the straight and narrow, he was going to get me to go in the army as an officer. Oh wow! Um, but my my father had different um, different ideas, so I ran away from home at fourteen and came to live with my dad. So I'd probably be a colonel in the army now, but instead I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a dodgy old villain instead. So okay. it's um, not a real villain, but. Well, I used to be a real villain, but now I'm retired, and I'm, and now I'm a pretend villain. <laughs> Much safer. It's art imitating life, but you need yeah. experience to tell your truth. Sure. So what is your earliest memory of being fascinated by film? I, was, I love, always love movies, but, it, you know, I was in a rock band for many years called The Marionettes. I did 15 years in a rock band, uh, toured the world. We did gigs with Nirvana, uh, Soundgarden, bands like that. Um, so that was kind of my thing. And then I had a recording studio and a record label. Uh, and then I fell into the nightclub game. And I actually owned the second biggest nightclub in the West End for five years. Called club Wild. It was called Club Wild. And that three and a half thousand capacity nightclub. And I was the boss. Right. And that's when I became kind of a real villain. Because in those days, in the 90s, in the club world, it was a very dark and dangerous business to be in. I'm very glad that I finally got out of it. Really? But at the tail end of my nightclub years, um, I think I mentioned when we spoke on the phone, I was walking down the Portobello Road uh, and this casting director stopped me. She said, my God, you look really evil. Do you want to be in The Mummy? And I sort of went, um, yeah, okay. So I found myself painted gold from head to foot, shaved, including yeah. my eyebrows, my legs and my pubes, yeah. wearing a nappy on the set of The Mummy down at Shepperton Studios. I think that was 1998 I was there. I think it came out in 1999. And, um, you sound I, very open to suggestion for somebody to kind of see you on the street like that. And just well, I always loved movies and I'd never seen yeah. it. And I, you know, you wait, this is a $250 million movie. So when you mm. walk on that set of Shepperton and they built ancient Egypt and it was like, wow, this is crazy. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was a, a wonderful experience, apart, apart from being painted gold for 21 days straight. Sure. Uh, and it gives you these kind of little green blackheads after a while. And so after <laughs> I finished it, it was a month before my feet went back to normal colour, you know. Wow. But, oh, wow. but it was, what happened there is, you know, I was kind of a glorified extra on that. I was, uh, you know, what they call a walk-on. But um, I was fascinated by it because you look at the set and you, it looks wonderful, but what you're seeing isn't beautifully lit. But when you sneak behind the DOP and look at the monitor and you see what the actual lens sees, I was sure. just absolutely taken with it. And you know, all the other extras are waiting out the back in their nappies for their, for their sandwiches and for their lunch. Yeah. And I made a point of just sitting very quietly. Back in those days, you could smoke a cigarette, there's my cup of tea and a fag, watching how they made this magic and watching the director and watching the DOP. And then I got another little part on, on The World Is Not Enough, James Bond. Again, it was, again, I was only an extra then, but it was a proper feature extra. I was on that for, I held Denise Richards round the waist yeah. for 11 days. Yeah. And she, ne and she, never, she never said hello to me once. Uh, uh, she was in that, the zone. Yeah, <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to say, I mean, it, we shouldn't like undermine your role in The World Is Not Enough because you were kind of the doppelganger henchman of the main villain, Reynard. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. 
and so it wasn't just, I mean, it felt like um, there was kind of this cult movement of this uh, character. I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, lead actor there. It's just in my head. But um, Robert Carlyle. Yeah, Robert Carlyle, because I knew him as a villain from uh, Cracker. That was the yeah, first yeah. time I'd really seen his performance. So to see him on a feature film was amazing, but then to see he had a doppelganger and the amount of screen time that you had, it felt like, um, it, for me, it felt like it added a different layer to the film. Like well, that, in terms that of launched my career. That kind of launched yeah. my career because I got very friendly with a guy called Jerry Gavigan. Sure. Uh, and um, there was a publicist whose name escapes me now, but he was a lovely guy. He's not with us anymore, sadly. But um, and he said, Sean, you, you shouldn't be an extra. You just got a face. You need to be. You need to be a proper yeah. actor. And I, I mean, I can't remember exactly when I made the switch and I said I wouldn't be an extra anymore. But I'm very lucky. I've been in the film business now for 20 years, uh, and I make a living out of it, which is, uh, you know, a lot of people. It, they do it part time. They have uh, have day jobs, but because I do everything from directing, cinematography, editing, and acting, I make a really not I'm not a millionaire, but I make a good living out of it. I'm very 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 fortunate to to be in that situation. But another thing that I'm one person I wanted to mention when I was on the Mummy was that a DOP called Adrian Biddle who did lots of the bonds. He died at the age of 53, uh, 53 years old, driving home from set, actually. But wow. uh, he was, uh, the way that this man used to paint with light was what really fascinated me. And although I was always interested because of the way I look, I, I was always going to be a kind of typecast as a villain. But it, that's what made, made, you know, the higher calling of, mm. of directing and I'm not saying demeaning actors, but it really is when you're taking a whole movie from the page to the screen, it's a, a much more complicated, difficult and challenging exercise than just turning up on day, you know, turning up every day and, and acting. I mean, acting is brilliant, but, but, but depending, obviously depending on the size of the part. Mm. But yeah, so um, Adrian Biddle, uh, may, may he rest in peace, but one of the best DOPs I've ever seen work, you know. I mean, it sounds like there's two key turning points in your career early on, which is obviously being um, the walk-on extra and gravitating towards the camera rather than craft services. And yeah. also um, being recognised for your screen time with the principal actors on screen. It seems like those two things have uh, come together and created a little explosion of momentum for you. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of, kind of found, found my niche. I mean, I, I'm not great, a lot of fun on the world is not enough because um, uh, Pierce Brosnan had only recently lost his wife then, um, but he, he's quite a heavy smoker, Pierce. And this guy's on a couple of million quid. And I don't know how much he was getting for the gig. Uh, and I'm on my 250 quid a day or whatever it was back yeah. then. Uh, and he smoked all my cigarettes, old Pierce. And, um, but he played backgammon on set between takes and I'm really good at backgammon so okay. every day I'd say Mr Bond you know yeah. let's have a quick game okay. and he went, no, about 11 days into the shoot he said come on then so at lunchtime I had a game of backgammon with Pierce and I beat him so I've got on my CV that I've beaten James Bond at backgammon uh, but he was, a, he was a lovely man as well lovely man had a lot of fun with him a lot of fun um with Robbie Coltrane as well. He was great fun to work with because he's a, uh, a very funny man, you know. And he smoked all my cigarettes as well, by the way. Actually, speaking about the, the proximity, um, can we talk about your stature as well? Because um, 
your IMDb listed height is six foot two, and yeah. Pierce Brosnan is one of the taller Bonds at six foot one. So how did you manage your kind of screen presence or or camera positioning? Because you're as tall or the same size as, as the the lead actor. I, that, I don't think that was, was was ever an issue. I mean, I mean, it was an issue with a certain other famous person, Mr. Cruz, because Mr. Cruz is a uh, vertically challenged um, okay. blessing. And there was an issue there. They, they did various tricks to make sure that um, if I was in it, because there was a few scenes that were cut from Mission Impossible where I had a few standoffs uh, or situations with him. Uh, and they did, um, you know, I won't say it, put him on a box. <laughs> <laughs> because the thing is, you're, yeah, so just to let everybody know, you're in Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, and you've actually got one of the pivotal kind of signature moments of Mission Impossible, which is the mask off, which mm -hmm. is now like the one of the main ingredients of the new Mission Impossible franchise. But we actually get you to, to see you in a self-styled planning the high scene where Tom Cruise actually takes a back seat in his own franchise, which is very unusual because you're literally stealing the scene yeah it's about three or four place. minutes long I mean you know so, and, and the camera's on me I was actually originally up for a much bigger role in that I don't know if you remember there was a uh, a big fight in uh, the Vienna Opera House sure uh, and I was up for that role um and I literally would call back about 20 times but the, the stunt coordination was so difficult and my agent at the time neglected to give me the tape when I went for the actual audition and I was gutted. This was, this was life-changing money, enough to buy a house, cash, and yeah. huge. And I thought, oh, no. And I, and I have to show Sean that your stunt performance, just, we need, you know, we're shooting in three days' time. We'd need at least two weeks to train you up. Wow. So I was mortified that I didn't get it. And so I was at home sulking. Uh, and then I got a call. I said, look, look they, whatever happens, they want you in the film. So I then found myself down um, with uh, Christian Mallet, who's the guy that made the mask. Sure. And it was funny, on the first day on set, I arrive on set and Christian's got my head under his arm and he's a perfect <laughs> likeness, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it was, a, it was great, great fun on that shoot. Um, I mean, there's some very funny moments. There's a scene where Simon Pegg's sitting in front of me. I'm there with the... So Simon's got my mask on. Yeah. Uh, I'm here. Tom Cruise is behind me. Tom Cruise's double is behind... Yeah. Uh, Simon yeah. and um, and then we've got Rebecca Ferguson and her double there was no actual mirror there it yeah. looks like there is but there wasn't this is a the, mirror this is the camera cinema magic isn't it the, the yeah there was no mirror there. and they, they literally made all the even the books on the bookshelves they, they put all the text in reverse um, but I've got a natural scar so they had to cover up my scar and put it on the other oh. side of my face which was weird <laughs> and um uh, and we didn't realise till the very last minute. And they go, no, no, Sean, your scar will be on the wrong side in the mirror. So we literally had to like yeah. polyfiller this one in and put put one on the side. But um, and it was really funny because that morning I'd had a full English breakfast. I had black pudding, baked beans, and, and I can't see Tom. He's behind me. Yeah. So I kept forgetting he was there. Anyway, and, and Simon Pegg's cracking jokes constantly. So you're permanently in stitches because he's always making the same comments. And I couldn't stop farting. I had the most terrible wind. <laughs> and eventually, I go, and eventually Tom, Tom's leant over my shoulder. He goes, Sean, would you mind start blowing off? And um, <laughs> it was very fun. And something else happened on that film set. I got bit, 
by a false widow spider. Oh, no. Um, I had a little spot on my arm one day. It was a bit painful. The next day, it was like a big lump. And then day five, my entire arm had doubled in size and gone black. Wow. Uh, and they said, look, Sean, so that obviously I was rushed to hospital. They said, look, Sean, you're going to have to stay in. Now, I had my scene. The mirror scene was the next day with Tom. I said, guys, just fill me full of drugs. I'm going to work. Sure. Um, I was even planning. I thought, well, if I lose my arm, I can get a really cool kind of metal one. Do you know what I mean? So I'd be a, <laughs> a villain. But, um, and then when I, when I went back on set, they could start, uh, Tom knew that I'd been bitten by this spider. Sure. So I've walked on set the next day. He goes, Sean, you're on the wrong movie. You should be on Spider-Man. Um, <laughs> but you know, Tom gets a lot of bad press, and he was a lovely man. He treats everybody so well on set, so respectful. So a lot of the rumors you hear about, you're not allowed to look at him. If, I mean, if you're a principal, you're allowed to, but all, yeah. all rubbish. Um, we one don't day have I, those rumors. I mean, I think for, for us, it's been more like Tom Cruise is more of a can-do, get-the-job-done situation it appears that he lives for film to the point where he makes it happen no matter what and i think the most recent clip that he's famous for is jumping off the building and breaking his ankle and then yeah well, i mean that, that omission on rogue nation he was hanging off a plane that was in the sky mm. it wasn't there was no you know it was real yeah. now for that that is a huge amount of commitment so another wonderful thing about tom is that uh, uh on the catering stand that was nearest to the main cast's trailers they only had filter coffee I mean, there was craft sure. services elsewhere where you could get an espresso um so one day i mentioned it i said the coffee's a bit crap like, he said is everything okay Sean? how's the catering mm -hmm. i said great i said but there's, there's no espresso coffee on the um by, by the main uh, catering uh Van. And the next morning, outside my trailer, I had my own vintage Italian coffee stand outside with a guy who was just wow. employed to make me coffee. And, I mean, and then I, obviously I said, I said, guys, look, I've got espresso. So every morning that everyone would descend on, <laughs> on my trailer for a double espresso before we got started. But it's wonderful working on, on, on films like that. You know, when I was an extra, you got to get the bus to work. But when you're a, you've got a proper role in a, in a film like that, it was a, not huge money, but, but, you know, a couple of years money in one, in two or three weeks, picked up in a limousine every morning. I had a beautiful female driver who tried to stop me smoking. Um, so she, she gave me this massive fake cigar. She had a whole load of them and thing. It looked totally real, but it had a blue end that used to illuminate. So I was known for walking around set, puffing on this big fake cigar every day. But it was a wonderful experience. I mean, I did, although that scene's only three Is that or four. Your first vape, then? Yeah, I mean, I still really? do vape a bit now. I do smoke a okay. little bit. But, wow. So Tom Cruise you know, introduced you to vaping. Yeah, vaping cigars, man. Wow. And, um, but it, a, a great experience. Great experience. I mean, I was, I was on it. 35 days i did it i mean 21 days actual shooting a lot of time on standby so you're getting paid full rate i mean i'd be working in my trailer on on other stuff but just those big movies it's a different level i mean i've played lead villains in very small movies where you still have to drive yourself to work like i did a film a couple of years ago called kill kane with vinnie jones vinnie jones plays the goody i'm the baddie i play kane keegan um vinnie was funny because um I kept saying, I'm playing the villain, and normally v Vinny plays the villain. Vinny, yeah. Vinny was playing a school teacher. And I remember the first day on set, the director's going, Vinny, you're a school teacher. Can you speak a bit more like this? He said, what yeah. like that? 
I said, no, no, because people like this, they say, well, right out. And Drex going, oh, that'll fucking do. Um, <laughs> trying to get Vinny to play up. But, but he was yeah. great. Really good fun to work with as well, Vinny. He's, uh, he is everything you think he is. That is him. He has <laughs> done very well for himself because he, he's also been in an X-Men movie and he starred alongside Nicolas Cage in Gone in 60 Seconds. So he's really made a good Hollywood career for himself as well. Yeah, he has, definitely, definitely. It's just a film with a friend of mine called Vengeance, uh, is it Vengeance 2 with Ross Boysack is a director friend of mine. He's done a... Vinny's like me, he gets kind of typecast, but the difference between me, I mean, uh, is that, I mean, there's a question in your, your questions, what's your favourite genre of films? And people always expect me to say, like, super villain ones or gangster films, but my favourite films are human interest stories, real life stories that, that make you laugh, that make you cry. I think I'm going a bit off, um, off piece right. here, so. I will let, we'll let Dominic uh, Brit steer us back on track. Okay, steering you in with my radio control mic. <laughs> um, I am like an air traffic controller. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> so, Sean, after um, all of these acting experiences, including leads like Kill Kane, or lead antagonists, I guess you could say, um, you moved into behind the camera with some self-funded shorts. So was that something that you'd wanted to do for a while and how did that come about? It's weird. My grandmother died in, oh God, I can't remember when it was, um, 2003, four. I got left a bit of money and it wasn't much, but I thought either I put a deposit on a house, which was a sensible thing to do, or I'd buy a couple of red ones. And I bought a couple of bloody cameras. Uh, uh, and in those days, that, I mean, that's probably worth three or four grand now. But when I bought it, I bought two of them. Mm -hmm. uh, they were like 80 grand for the two, including all of the kit that goes with them. Uh, uh, and, you know, Reds were revolutionary. We're shooting at 4K. It's plug and play. It's when they, I mean, that, that one there was, I think, the sixth one off the production line. So it's an old wow. classic. So, you know, after the club business, I got... I was always doing both, always in parallel. But, um, you know, I start, I mean, I made, I did a, the first thing I shot, and you can find it online. I act in it as well. And it's called Drug Dealers Birds. And it's. Um, Sounds great. Loosely based <laughs> on Footballers Wives It Ain't. And um, loosely based on a guy that I knew because I lived in Spain for a while, a guy called Brian Charrington, who was. Um, Pablo Escobar's European distributor. And wow. I basically, I bumped into his sons. I'm in, a, I'm in an internet cafe in Spain. And these two younger looking guys, I thought they were Spanish or something, but anyway, I got talking to them. Anyway, it's an internet cafe halfway up a mountain, about two or three miles from Benidorm, at a place called Altea. And there's one guy in the internet cafe using the internet. You have to put euros in to keep going. Anyway, I'm in there as well. And I close it, they start closing up. And as we walk out, one of them gets into a Bentley and one gets into a Ferrari. And I went, guys, you've got an internet cafe halfway <laughs> up a bloody mountain. And they said, well, why don't you just Google my dad? I Googled it. And we became great friends. And I met the father who is the Don. He's the godfather of, of that. I mean, he had 80 villas in Spain, 80. Wow. A bit like Pablo Escobar had 800 villas around Colombia. And wow. he would fly in a helicopter from one to the other. So I got very friendly with Brian. Um, I'm going to tell you some quite naughty stuff, but I'll behave myself. But, um, <laughs> and, um, and he gave me, he said, look, 
we had a little bit of fun and he, he was the advisor. We made a little kind of short based on his life and I play him. It's really low production value. It's kind of like EastEnders by the sea. That was the first thing I directed. And then um, I've directed over about 80 commercials now. I've done some real big ones. I've directed probably 60 or 70 music videos. I've got 25 shorts, 15, 15 movies. I've DOP'd about 25. So I've done, quite, I've done quite a lot. But it's always been in parallel with acting. I'm, I, mean, I just want to jump very quickly to a role that I've just done. Sure. I made four movies last year. Um, a film called Safeguard, where I played Igor. That was quite good. I did, but I, I, I did a film called Election Night, where which is was kind of meant to come out with Brexit. So all these yuppies, all these sort of um, upwardly mobile Notting Hill billies, are all they're all in a big mansion in Notting Hill, watching the election, and the right wing have got in, or are going to get in, and I'm outside. There's riots outside, and I knock on the door. I deliberately bottle my girlfriend over the head nice. to get into their house, uh, and I get in to, to, supposedly to seek refuge, and then I kill them all one by one. And, but it's very political, because I'm, I'm obviously clearly very right-wing, and they don't notice that I've got a swastika on my neck, you know what I mean? And it goes horribly wrong, and I kill everybody. So that's due to... Uh, and then, but the biggest thing I did last year is a movie called Renville 2, uh, and it's... Multi-million budget. I'm the lead. Um, it's kind of Deadpool meets Batman meets James Bond, and um, uh, and the character that I play, he owns ironically a huge pharma com- company. And guess what he's done? He's invented a cure for flu, and this is way before coronavirus. And it's and but he's a proper supervillain, uh, you know, a bit like Scaramanga in the Man, uh, uh, Man the Golden Gun or. Um, what did Christopher Walken in? Was it View to a Kill? Yeah. Um, it sounds a little bit like Darkman as well. Do you remember? Yeah, I mean, and the cinema, this, yeah, I do. Cinematography on this and the way it's shot, it's, I mean, what's frustrating, I'll jump to this now, is that productions have grown ground to a halt. Um, cinema for the foreseeable future, although they open on July the 4th, will the public be confident enough to go and sit next to somebody else? So uh, cinema for the foreseeable future is, if, if not dead, is compromised. But what has happened is that VOD, Video On Demand, Netflix, Amazon, Sky, the sales have quadrupled. So yeah. that's why I was saying that we're, as an f- independent filmmaker, I'm quite lucky. And I'm also lucky that I've got four films all completed in the can. And what's going to happen over the next... Six months to 18 months is content will be king because productions are going to very tentatively go back online, but there's all kinds of social distancing measures and all kinds of crazy stuff that's going to go on. So I'm in a very advantageous position in some ways because I've got four films all ready for release. But the, the downside of that is that they were all meant to be cinema releases and now most of them are going to be online. So it's um it's it's a swings and roundabout situation, but it's um it's you know COVID has changed everything for everybody. It has affected the film business, you know, greatly. In some ways, in a good way. I mean, DVD sales are down by seventy percent over here because um, supermarkets are more worried about stocking eggs, hand sanitizer, and toilet roll, so they're not taking new titles on. In America, that's not the case. It's only down by ten percent. So the the the, the playing field has changed, yeah. but, but, but VOD is where it's at. And, and the other thing that's changed as well, because 
There used to be a traditional thing, well, a movie should be 90 minutes long. That's not the case anymore. I mean, Give Them Wings is two hours, 20 minutes, or, or close to. Um, because you can pause it and go and make a cup of tea. You're not in the cinema. Uh, it's, a, it's a very different being that we have. So people are making films. I mean, look at some of the productions on Netflix and Amazon, the size of these productions, like Vikings or The Crown. The Crown was, I think, 10 or 15 million per episode. So that's where the smart money is. It's going into home, home cinema. Um, so anyway, yeah, I kind of digressed a little bit, but that's kind of what's happened. And I'm very lucky because I've, I've got four films all ready to go. So I'm in an advantageous position. So how does that work, though? Like, does that affect the revenue if you can't open it in a cinema? Or... It's just the revenue has shifted. Um, I mean, there was an article I saw briefly today. I can't remember who it was, but someone was demanding that Netflix share their windfall with the, uh, the I, I, can't, I can't remember exactly who it was. They were talking with one of the arts areas that's been really adversely affected is theatre. Theatre has literally oh, been decimated. I, I think it was Sam Mendes. That's right, that's it. right. Yeah, we saw it. Uh, I think I saw it somewhere this morning that, um, you know, I mean, again, when is theatre going to go back to me? Yeah, but uh, he's asking them to invest back in theatre as opposed to redistribute into other filmmakers or independent film. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, think, I think that's a good thing because film, film has not been, in, overall, financially, not that badly um, affected, not as badly as, as the restaurant business or, or, or yeah. the hospitality trade or, and, of course, theatre. But it's, um, I mean, even cinema... Yeah, you know, how on earth are you going to have capacity audiences? When I premiered my war movie, Eleven, we did it at the Picture House. We had a 700-seater. We had 720 people in. I mean, this is packed. Mm. When is that going to happen again? I'm hoping that um, somebody blows the whistle so that we can get back to some kind of normal sooner rather than later, you know. It does feel that there's a movement of everybody holding on to their cards until one of the bigger players puts all of their chips down and says, we're going back to the cinema like this. And it feels like Christopher Nolan and Tenet is the kind of the launch pad to, at the time of writing, that when his film goes back to the cinema, because it's like an event movie, uh, then that will be the signpost to say, it's okay to go back to the cinema after this large, heavily invested production. Well, I'm hoping, not, for, not just for the film industry, I'm, for the hospitality industry particularly have been affected. But, you know, people are learning to work in a different way. Yeah. There's a lot less time wasted travelling about. And, um, mm. you know, so we'll see. Maybe some good will come out of it. Actually, one thing we could ask you is, now that we are in this kind of COVID-19 coronavirus mentality and there's social, we talked about social distancing, and governments are talking about staying safe and um, helping the hospitals. As a gentleman who's also a filmmaker and a producer, are you looking at or observing any specific COVID-19 safe guidelines to take your projects back into production? Um, I mean, the next movie I'm going to direct is a movie called Bogeyville, which is a vampire movie. Um, so there will have to be a bit of close contact because I've got to eat a few people, um, as you do. Um, there's a lot of these kind of COVID-safe websites, you know, where you have to take tests to find out if you're... It's, look, for the well-being 
or the primarily the mental well-being of people that are convinced by what we are witnessing, I will be, of course, adopting guidelines. But people are nervous. Um, you know, 95% of the population, when this first started, were believing everything they were being told. Now I'd say it's about 50-50. The, the jury really is out. But, um, you know, there, there may be some, one for the mental wealth, well-being of anyone that really is worried, has been affected by, or is convinced by it, and two, for probably insurance purposes, we will have to look at things very differently. But to make a, a full, I mean, another movie that, uh, that, that is... Um, 75% finance, which I've been in, had in pre-production now for three years, development three years, is a true story of a very good friend of mine, Michael Watson, the boxer. Um, and there are scenes there where we have that fateful night at White Hart Lane when he was so badly injured. We are going to have to have at least 300 extras around that ring. I mean, there was 10,000 plus people at that fight. We'll be, probably be able to do that. We'll be able to comp them in. Uh, uh, you know, green screen them, uh, the majority of them in, but the first 10, 15 rows will have to be re real people. So that's that's a big worry for productions. It's, you know, unless something comes to light that says, hang on a minute, this isn't quite what they say it is. But if it is, or if the industry continues to be convinced that it is, at what point will, will 300 extras be able to be in that situation again together? So sure. that's a film now that I've had to put on the shelf until I have some serious answers. That was the next one up. Okay. But now I'm doing the vampire one because it's, there's less people involved. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of bits of biting. But luckily the main person I eat it, eat it, I play Madison, um, is my daughter. So I turn my daughter into a vampire in it. She's blind. Georgia, are you there? She's in the other room. Um, so because I've been I've been quarantined with her, I'm probably allowed to bite her. Yeah. But um, yes, sir. there Hello, she Georgia. is. This is Georgia. Hi. <laughs> Hi, nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. So, Sean, um, the character roles you've taken on as an actor, do they reflect your philosophy of life in any way? Well, I don't kill people that often. <laughs> no, um, no, not at all. Um, I'm a single father, two girls, I've got a fluffy dog. Um, I, one of the things that I've, because I was involved in the nightclub industry at a high level, and because of my ancestry, my Italian, Sicilian ancestry, and because of the people I was involved with when I had the club world, I became kind of a villain for a while, because I had to, because, I, again, I can't mention names because of... Um, legal reasons but um my business partners in the nightclub were the second biggest crime crime family in the uk ever to have lived and i wasn't with them by choice uh, i i was uh kind of tricked into it uh, and I, I i i i faced death two or three times during that scenario yeah. um and i became quite an evil person and uh you know there were shootings at my club and i ultimately had to hide for two years after the catalyst of having that nightclub and the things that went wrong uh, and the drugs. And the, and the, it's different now, very different, of course, with COVID, very different now. And the bigger clubs are now owned by a sort of reputable franchise. But back in those days, the club world was, was quite similar to the way, the, ways it, the way it was in the days of the craze and this particular crime family. So 
I'm not that person and I never wanted to be that person. And when, when my doorman got shot in the testicles for the second time and I lost my public entertainment license forever, I put my mobile phone and the keys to the club through the door and I walked away from this scenario. And it was the most uplifting experience I've ever had. But because of that and because of my ancestry and because I knew what my, what my great, my ancestors did, um, my villains come from true life experience. So I, I've been there. I've been a villain. I've been surrounded by that world. So that's why I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but that's why people that book me think I'm quite convincing in the roles because I kind of, it's kind of method acting. And also when I'm on set, I do what Daniel Day-Lewis did on, uh, um, on um, Gangs of New York. I'm pretty much in character. So people kind of stay the fuck away from me when I'm playing my character because, because I get into it to a point, especially Rendell. I mean, Rendell was a, he is a proper supervillain, proper. Mm. And, um, and, and, you know, to, to, to come across on screen instantly when you need it to be, you can't just snap into it. You have to be in that mindset. So, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not that person. I'm definitely not that person, but I have to turn myself into that person. But again, it was on 11, it was great because you see me at the beginning of the film as a horrible, I mean, they weren't Nazis. They were the Kaisers in, in the First World War. And you're, you know, scar, bald, face. You think, Christ, this guy's fucking horrible. But I end up being the man that, I, that as the war ends, me and the hero are in a crater together and we hear the bells tolling the end of the war. So and suddenly we're no longer enemies and we talk about our lives and our families uh, and we become friends in that 20 minutes or whatever it is in, in the film. We, we become friends and I, I'm ultimately the guy that takes the, or writes to his wife to say that he's died. And um, it's a really, t- I mean, I still, it's a tiny little film, but when we premiered this film, this 50 grand movie in a, to a sold out full house in Leicester Square or in the picture house, 90% of the audience cried at the end. 90%. Some of them because it was so bad, and some of them because they were touched. No, but, so, and that was a lovely character to play, to go from being what you think is a horrible villain to being a loving, caring father and the man that realises that, that there, there, that war was a pointless war, like every war is stupid. Fellow man, we're all the same. We're all equal. We've all got loves and hates and family and, you know, like the BLM at the moment. BLM, of course, every life matters. Black lives matter because white lives have always mattered. And that's why, well, I, and that's what I think the message is. Um, you know, I think that because there has been a lot of institutional racism for many, many years and, and it's still around now. So people waving the white lives matters flag, I don't personally agree with because... White lives, have all, white lives have always mattered, and, and that's been, I think, is the issue. That I can't remember who it was. I'll show you this after, guys. There's a, there was a, a radio interview of someone who explains it so poignantly. He, just, he gets it completely. But the same as in, you know, when you're all fighting against Germans in a war, you're, you're killing a man who's got a wife and children, and vice versa. The stupidity and pointlessness of war. Um, and that's what it... it um, it's reconciliation. That film is about reconciliation. So that's an interesting going through that journey and playing a villain and then not being a villain. So I think, um, Sean, you've got a third project um, that you want to do about the bare knuckle world fighting champion, James McCrory. 
Yeah, there's another film, but I've been, I'm not quite as close to that one. A friend of mine, Cy Biggs, came to me with a screenplay, which is very good. And I, and I know James very well. He's on my Facebook. So we talk. Uh, and that's a little bit further down the line. Um, and, he, and the reason that came to me is because of the boxing one. But the Michael Watson one is um, very exciting. I mean, I know Michael very well. Before lockdown, I lunched with Michael uh, once every two months. Um, I've also got Jared Harris attached to it. He's not attached on IMDb at the moment because it's been in pre-production for a long time, but I got a letter of intent from Jared. Jared Harris will be playing Peter Hamlin, who was the neurosurgeon that saved Michael Watson's life. Um, I've got quite a Bruce Payne's in there playing Frank Warren. I've got Nick Moran playing Barry Hearn. So I've got um, quite Good an casting. It's a really, I mean, look, even look like I've got a great cast on that. I'm very, very and I've all the other guy that's very interesting, um, Nathaniel Wilson, who is uh, Chris Eubank's estranged son, is playing Eubank. Wow. Uh, and, um, it's really funny because they didn't know each other very well. And he kind of always denied um, the existence of Nathaniel because um, it, was, it, it was an affair, basically. And so you, everybody knows about uh, Chris Eubank Jr., who's got a slightly lighter complexion than Chris. But, but Nathaniel is a spitting image of Chris. He's a boxer. Slightly better looking than Chris. Don't, don't kill me, Chris. I'm a friend, a good friend of Chris. But Chris got very unique features. But Nathaniel's slightly more chiseled. But, uh, you know, it, it's Hollywood, so that's okay. But, um, and um, he bumped into his son on the train to Brighton years ago. And he went up to Chris Eubank. He said, I said you're my dad. And, and that was the first contact they'd had. And, but, again, Chris kept, kept denying it really, or not getting close to it. We had a, a, a difficulty with coming out in the open with it. And then when I met Nathaniel, cast him, went to see him box several times, and I cast him, and then I got them back together again. And now they're really great friends. And Chris, wow. Eubank, Chris Eubank and Steve Collins. And Steve Collins is the guy that took Eubank's title, not once, but twice. Um, I got, and, and we're arch enemies. Uh, I'm now friends again because I brought them together for lunch with Michael. And um, uh, so I've got uh, Steve Collins, world middleweight champion, not, uh, um, and Chris Eubank, world middleweight champion, advising on the, the fight choreography on the film. So it's quite yeah, an exciting yeah. cohesion for the, for the boxing family. Um, it's just whether or not we can... It's quite a big budget. It's a, you know, it's a few million, so it's not, it's not, a, it's not a cheap film to do. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping that a, a big studio's... I've been talking to a very big studio for years about this. And if Give Them Wings, I mean, Give Them Wings, we'll go on to that in a minute, but uh, in this business, you can't make a film until you've made a film. That's, it's a catch-22. It's, uh, you know, you've got to prove yourself. It's a bit like a very good friend of mine, who you might know, a guy called Noel Clark, who did kidhood, adulthood. Um, and um, he used to be my personal trainer at Kensington Sports Centre. Uh, and, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's trying to get rid of, he's always trying to get rid of the constant belly that's been following me around for 20 years. And, um, and he was talking about his little film called Kidhood. Uh, and he was so passionate about it. Uh, and we still, we still, I, I talked to Noel once a week. We were really good friends. And um, he bloody pulled it off. He won a BAFTA. So, uh, but he made that little film and now he's doing very, very well. So it's, it's that kind of thing. You've got to make something really good that stands up 
and make no mistake, any, any budding filmmakers out there, you can sit and watch a film for one or two hours. It go, might go over your head. You might nod off in the middle of it. It's probably taken 100 people 10 years to make it. That's how long, I mean, not, the film I've just directed, it, it was eight years in development, trying to get the money and get people on board. There's a funny story um, about uh, Catherine Bigelow. She was married to a guy. You know who he is, but uh, the, the anecdote works when I reveal it later. She, 12 years, her husband was trying to make a film about a fucking boat. Right? She left him because he would not stop going on about a film about a boat. That film was Titanic. That man was James Cameron. 12 years to get the, the, the green light to make that. And then it became, at that point, the biggest grossing movie of all time. And she went on to um, actually direct one of my favourite vampire movies called Near Dark, which is what kind of loosely similar uh, atmosphere to the one I'm about to direct. But, um, so it takes a long time to make a film. Um, it's very easy to, to belittle people that do it. And it, it's, it's hard work. It really is hard to, to convince people to give you the money and then to drag this thing over the line. You know, I'm... Uh, that film I did, I directed a war film called Eleven, about the last two hours of the First World War. We had tiny budget, tiny, 50, 60 grand. It was the middle of January, right? You're shooting in the trenches. We have six hours of light a day to bring a feature film. Uh, um, uh, and we did stuff at night as well. There was other bits and bits, but most of it was set in the trenches. Uh, minus 15, as I said to uh, um, earlier on that we um, we had a deaf sound there of course which didn't help but um, you know uh, and at the end of that film I definitely got coronavirus I had pneumonia for a month after that because the pre-production was hell the the shoot although it was I think 15 days in the trenches and then 15 days at other locations but at minus 15 I was acting directing and cinematographer right because we had no money uh, and you know, made the fuck. And I used to go and get the breakfast in the morning. It was that. It's 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 an incredible. And there was a year editing the feature film. It's you know, people don't realise how much effort goes into filmmaking. And another thing, people were saying during the crisis about the NHS and these are our champions. And of course they are. Of course they are. Um, and, you know, the firemen, the doctors, the soldiers, the police, all of the people who do this wonderful job to keep us safe, to keep you know the the, the country and the world functioning. But we are the entertainment. When they get, when those guys get home, they go, "Fuck, that was terribly hard." You know, what a day I've had. They sit down and they watch a movie, and we take them away. We take them into a world of fantasy where they can, you know, escape uh, and, and have a bit of um, relief from their very, very difficult and challenging job. So I don't ever like to hear that. You know, I do think celebrities, some in many cases, have an inflated opinion of themselves. Um, with some. Uh, I mean, I had a, some quite interesting uh, situation with Samuel L. Jackson because they tried to get Samuel to play Don King in the Michael Watson story. In the film, he has one line. It's the, it's the, the scene where Nigel Benn uh, knocks out... Um, oh, crikey, what's the boxer's name? Nigel um, I should know this. I wrote the bloody screenplay after he's the name in my tongue. Yeah, he basically was put into a coma in a similar way to Michael Watson uh, by Nigel Benn. Oh, um, okay. Give me a sec. I'll just try and... Oh, come it. on. 
It's very important. There's Gerald, an Gerald McClellan. Gerald McClellan, that's correct. And, and, and there's a scene where Michael's disabled at this point, at the end of the film, <laughs> and the same thing happens to him. Uh, the Dark Destroyer, Nigel Benn, desperately injures him. And Don King is there promoting Gerald McClellan. He's his boy. Sure. But the, the promoters, the boxing promoters of this world are so evil. So he sees his, his man, Gerald McClellan, slipping unconscious. His eyes are blinking. There's a bleed on his brain. And instead of running to his aid, he turns round to Nigel Benn. He goes, you made a believer out of me. Wow. One line. I was flying him in for one line because we were going to go into production before lockdown. Lockdown stopped yeah. it. We were literally ready to go. Yeah. He wanted 1.2 million, including wow. his, for one line, including his, he had 10 entourage, 3,000 pound a ticket, first class, 10, 10 or five days in a, in a five-star hotel. We only need him for a morning. And it's like, yeah. dude, I love you, Samuel, man. But that's half our budget on one line. So um, I'm now talking to, uh, to um, no, Lenny Henry um, is in the frame, hopefully, uh, and I've got another comedian as well to play Don King. And I think Lenny would be a great Don King, can you imagine? Yeah. Put the yeah. Kind of bad, bad hair on him. Lenny Henry's actually quite a good actor. A lot of people remember his comedy career, but I think he did a very good turn in the TV series Chef. He yeah, he did. I went to see him about, gosh, about two years ago, and he's kind of on the fence about it at the moment. The problem is with film, is that you got to get? You can't make a film until you made a film. One thing. The other film is you can't get the money to get the film unless you've got the talent. But you can't get the talent unless you've got the money. Sure. So you have to beg the talent to say they might do it, so that then the guys, the money guys, say they might give you the money. Um, and and that's one of the really difficult things. I mean, I, I was very lucky to have Jared Harris, who's a huge actor. Mm. I, I, every year, um, except last year because I was I was shooting, but. Um, Every year for the last five or six years, I co-present the, the um, Richard Harris International Film Festival in Limerick, which is... Um, uh, it's Harris really, is it's, yeah, Richard Harris's kind of tribute festival with a great friend of mine, uh, Zeb Moore. And that's where I first met Jared. And, and we, uh, I, I did a boxing film a few years ago with London Hood, uh, Bare Knuckle Boxing Short, which did quite well, won a few awards. And... Um, uh, Jared saw saw that and really liked it, and then I asked him to play to play um, Peter Hamlin in the Michael Watson film. He said yes. Yeah. So I'm very lucky, but even having him hasn't raised all all, all the funding, you know. So, sure, anyway. I just wanted to touch on something because you you we were we briefly uh, spoken about your short film directing <laughs> career, and now you're saying Jared Harris um, saw one of your short films and then that unlocked him to kind of join you on a feature film project. There's certain people who are like perennial short filmmakers and they'll always make short films and they never kind of bridge that gap or leap into making yeah, okay. a feature film. And I can't you get seem it. to have made, made some short films with an intention of, I want to go and make these kind of biopic human interest stories. So what is the big learning curve that you've surmounted to get from making short films to now making the feature films that you want. But well, what it is, what it is, everybody, one of the things that always frustrated me, when I, just, I'll just jump back to the war film. I was brought on as DOP on the war film. And um, there was a guy, Rock Soul, a very talented writer, but he'd never directed before. 
Uh, and this guy that financed it was putting all his own personal money in it. So day two, we've realised that the director didn't know how to do it. The signs that the director wasn't doing it in the right way. When you've got a very small amount of time, small budget, you can't really be learning on set mm -hmm. on somebody else's money. Um, so I was asked day two to step in as co-director because I've done it before. And, you know, you don't, you wouldn't go to uh, a student to have your son's brain tumour removed. You would go right, to a neurosurgeon yeah. who's qualified. So uh, there's a lot of people that just jump into film. I'm a director. I can do this. And I, listen, I made 20 shit films. Trust me, they're rubbish. Uh, but that was my learning curve. So for me, short films was about learning my craft, directing commercials and, and music videos. And I, every, still now, every time I go on set, I pick up new information from other people. So one of the things that I, that I firmly believe is that to make good films, you do need to know what you're doing. I mean, yes, it's great. The great thing about film is you can, you can play around with it. Because cameras now, are, you, digital cameras are available, I'm not saying that you shouldn't direct stuff, but to go on to a set where there's a lot of money, or even, even if it's a small amount of money, if it's someone's put 100 grand of their own money in the pocket and is expecting you to be able to deliver a product that will, remember, it's a business. Right? So people have got to make their money back at a feature level. And that's the difference between short. Short films are experimental. They're never going to make any money back, not very rarely. Uh, and that is the, you know, the, the, the platform where feature film directors, I think, learn their craft. And I think, with this, I mean, he's a great guy, so I'm not, I don't want to say anything detrimental, but I just think if he directed half a dozen shorts beforehand, he would have been better prepared. To, I remember we, we've got howling gales, pouring rain. It's minus 15 degrees. We've got 30 soldiers in uniform. And we deliberately did it in January because we wanted, to, we wanted the actors to suffer because you can see their breath. But to keep making mistakes and go, oh, shit, oh, shit, shit. And, and, and these guys are like freezing the guts off, their, their balls off, you know. So that was kind of why I stepped in. Not saying that he's not a very talented guy. The script was brilliant and he's a very talented man and, and he's gone on to, to progress. But, but you, you need to do, you need to, I believe, you need to learn your craft. And I even jumped over to the New York Film School and, and did a course in cinematography. You know, and yes, I played around with it, but I did want some, you know, I kind of knew how, but I didn't know why. So I went to learn why, what, you know, about aperture and ISO and shutter speeds and all that kind of stuff, you know. Some stuff that you just can't wing. You can't wing focus. It's, got to, it's either soft or it isn't, things like that. So I just, I believe that, and I think some short filmmakers who only say short filmmakers possibly never have the ambition to become feature filmmakers. Maybe it's just a hobby. I know a lot of people that make great short films and they progress, but I think if you intend to make a living out of this and, and, and also leave a legacy, because life is very, very short, and one of the reasons that I do films is not just for me, it's for, it's for my kids. I'm a single father. My girls, they're 11 and 12 now. They've never met their mum. She left when they were six months old, six and 18 months old. So... I want them to be proud of what I've done. And also, hopefully, there'll be some royalties coming in to help towards their rent, you know, <laughs> once I'm dead and gone, because I smoke and drink too much. <laughs> so that's kind of what I think. Short films, I think that's, 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 that's film school. If you haven't gone to film school, that's where you, that's where you learn. And I think, um, and then you make the financial decision. Like I made the decision to say, right, I'm not going to be an expert anymore. Although I was getting shitloads of work. I said, right, you've got 30 days on this. But standing in the background, I said, no, I'm going to be an actor. 
I'm going to go into to, to directing. And I've had some times where I've had literally had 20 quid in my bank. But I said, well, I can go and get a job now. But no. And now I'm comfortable. I make, I'm, you know, hopefully I remain comfortable. I mean, the, the foreseeable future is, is a little bit uncertain, obviously, because of the way the industry's gone. But at the moment, I've, you know, I've, I've made that commitment. And I think if you want to be a filmmaker or you want to be successful at it, you've got to say, right, that's what I do. There's not enough hours in the day to be a doctor or a nurse, a policeman, an actor or a director. It's a full-time job if you're doing it at a commercial level. So that's It sounds it. like you've got a warrior mindset and you've overcome a lot of battles there, Sean. So could you let us know if there was a moment in your acting career or your film career where you felt you'd come to like a dead end and you couldn't go any further? and because you must, it sounds like you've gone through so many tumultuous experiences. And is there, was there one moment where things just wasn't working out and you, and you was finding it difficult to have a breakthrough and what did you do to get over it? Um, obviously, I get typecast all the time. I've only ever played villains. And even when I've played on a couple of films where I do cry in the film, and if you watch Eleven, I, I'm a horrible German soldier and you think I'm really nasty and I turn out to be the good guy in the end, which is the first time ever. And it's only the first film I don't die in. But there was never really a hurdle because I've just done this huge film now that if it gets the 127 countries that it's supposed to be getting, um, that's not, it's not really a hurdle. It wasn't really a point I got to where I couldn't go any further. It's just a point I got to is to, it's great turning up being a villain. It's great fun. But telling the true life story of, a, of an injured boxer that fights his way back from the brink of death or my story that I've just directed about a paraplegic who was supposed to be dead when he's five and is now 55 or telling the story of the last two hours of the First World War and these men thought they were going home. It's nine o'clock. The war ends at 11. There's a big fat general sitting 15 miles behind enemy lines that says, Let's give the Germans one last punch on the nose. Now, these guys are going, they're looking at their watches. Fucking hell, two hours, we're going to see our loved ones. Fucking 11,000 died in the last 15 minutes of the world, First World War to, to satisfy the ego of a establishment militant fucking privileged general. So to tell those stories, it wasn't like, oh, fuck, I'm not doing very well as a villain. It's like, Hang on a minute. I want to tell real stories about real people. And, you know, this is, this is terrible. You know, I mean, I nodded off in the premiere of Mission Impossible. I fell asleep. I missed my day. Wow. Because great experience, and it's a huge movie set, and the film's a great film. But it's not real. Sure. What I tell is real stories that really matter. And, and, and you know, I might... There's always a bit, a bit of cinematic license. I mean, the Michael Watson one, I, I mean, myself and Matt wrote the screenplay with Michael. So it's, it's 100% his story. There's no, uh, even though some of the money guys go, we need a love interest with me. I said, no, 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 I'm telling Michael's story. I'm not going to, he said, we need, your, we need your girlfriend to be unfaithful and you to get her back. I said, no, that didn't <laughs> that's, happen. Is it, it, that sounds like Rocky. Yeah, we did. I said that didn't happen. This is Michael Watson, his real story. And it's not, you know, all fights are not in the ring. This is about his fight back, 40 days in a coma, um, hanging out with the man as well. I mean, I, you know, he's, 
He's got 85% of his motor functions. And he's slow, a little bit slow. But it's like, when you meet him, it's like he's been reborn. This guy, he smiles through his eyes. I mean, my, my girls have met him a few times. And he's just this wonderful guy that's been given a second chance. And it's just, you know... So telling those stories is that it wasn't really, I got to a point where I wasn't getting enough roles, because I, I still do. I mean, I'm now very lucky. I don't even get auditioned for roles, really. They just say, well, like that horrible villain, you know. And that's fine. I mean, Rendell paid my rent for the next two years. So I thank, you know, I was so thankful. And that also, because I could probably make more money out of acting than I do out of directing. So the lucky of kind of the bigger villain roles that I've had last year have made me comfortable enough to sit in because I've, I've been paid peanuts to direct this film that I've done now but it's a passion project and it's um, you know so it wasn't really a hurdle it was a, a conscious decision to although keep that going for financial reasons but to move into something really important which is telling true stories about real people and real situations How did you first become familiar with the story of Paul Hodgson? So, um, I met Paul, I think I met him while we chatted on Facebook, and he was a bit of a fan of, of my work. And he asked me to direct a feature film, uh, sorry, a short film called An Unfortunate Woman. An Unfortunate Woman is a true story of Kathleen Mumford, who smothered her own child in 1938, aged five, year old, five years old. The child had something called Little's disease, which is um, a very acute form of cerebral palsy. The child, the boy couldn't move, he couldn't see, he couldn't hear, he couldn't speak. He was inert. He was basically a vegetable. Uh, and uh, in the 30s, if your child, aged five, could not go into school, that child would be thrown in, into an institution and left to rot. Uh, and she didn't want that to happen. And she's actually, the reason I made the film is because Ian, Paul Hodgson's carer, Ian, who is portrayed in the film as well, is a distant relative of Kathleen Mumford. So the story was kind of close to Paul and Ian's heart. Uh, and literally, um, she smothers him. And eventually, she gets locked up for two years for murder. Uh, and eventually, wow. the crime is commuted to a mercy killing um, because she killed him for mercy. Mm. He, was, he had no life ahead of him. Anyway, and Paul was looking for a director for an unfortunate woman. He, bless him, it, he came down with Ian, his care on the train, his wheelchair, and um, we had a meeting, and he was seeing four or five directors to direct it, and, and I got the gig, we got on really well. And what's so funny about Paul, remember this guy has a very similar condition. He contracted childhood meningitis, aged um, 10 months old, his parents were told he would never move or speak and he would be dead by the time he was five. He's now 55 years old. He can move. He can speak. He's sexually active. First thing he said to me, he goes, Sean, I'll do a little of that. He goes, he goes, I can't move much, but I can hold a fucking pint. <laughs> and uh, another, there's another great situation in a, in a scene that I think got omitted in the film. It was a bit risque, but he goes, um, he pulls this girl. He goes, I can fuck you but you're going to have to carry me up the stairs. He's got this sense of humour. This guy has been dealt this terrible hand of cards. He's, he, he's, he can't speak properly. He's, he's twisted. He's, he's called Flipper because he can't put his hands together. But oh, he, okay. it's like he's been dealt this hand of cards and he doesn't give a shit. He's tenacious. He's funny. I'm sure he has his dark moments, and you'll see some dark moments in the film. That he, you know, he does try and take his life. 
you, you've graciously given us an opportunity to watch uh, the Venice Film Festival preview cut. It's not the final, final cut. Yeah, away it's, from final it's, cut. It's, um, it's very... We, we've got at least two hours and 15 minutes of content that we, that we saw. And um, I think it was a very brave choice, uh, the way you did the opening of the film, to get us attached to how the character feels, because there's an opening scene like standardly you see a lot of films where the lead character gets out of bed on a nice sunny morning but this is specifically a character who has uh, suffered from meningitis like you said from the age of five to a point that's become a, a permanent disability and we're watching that per that character um have difficulty get into physically get into a chair for at least Eight minutes. It, it felt like eight minutes. It was yeah, probably, it's not that long. That's three minutes. It felt. But the thing is, for somebody who doesn't have that issue and can overlook it, and now have to sit down or sit in with the, in a cockpit of a character who has that obstacle that they have to overcome every day of life, I think it was a very brave decision to get as get get the audience to emotionally attached to that. And I wanted to know how did you discover. Daniel Watson as an actor to play this role? Well, this, this is very interesting because um, I saw 270 actors to play the lead. We were casting for a month. I had the guys, some of the money guys. I had the, a guy called um, Pucky Lee was going to play him from Peaky Blinders. I had some other names. We were even talking to Jamie Bell at one point. Okay. Um, and this guy walks in, this kid, Daniel, unknown, and nailed it. Just nailed it. Straight, he got the stutter right. He looks like Paul. I mean, he's a slightly more cinematic version of Paul because Paul's got a big fucking nose. But don't, I can say things to Paul. Yeah. Paul and I are very, very close. So I, you know, I can call him whatever I like. We have a lot of fun. But, um, and it was also, I, I wanted Paul to be comfortable. And Paul came to some of the auditions. He didn't come to that particular one. I did that one in Newcastle. Yeah. And he walked in the room and, and I just found him, I can't, Janet Platter was his agent and he'd done absolutely nothing. And he just lit up the room and he just nailed it. And everyone's going, I had literally distributors going, no, no, we can't have, we've got to have this name. And I said, I stuck to my guns. I mean, I lost half the money, half the money pulled out, but I said, I'm sorry. That's the actor. I'm not, it's not negotiable. So Daniel Watson, to put a politically correct term on it, is he an able-bodied person playing a disabled person? He is. He's got a condition. A, put it, put it, put it, he's, he's kind of on the autistic spectrum, but I yeah. am as well. I mean, I was, I was actually diagnosed yeah. as autistic when I was a kid. Yeah. I, I, when I used to go to school, I couldn't turn right. I could only go left. Yeah, so I, could, yeah. I, I had like weird OCD things like that. So sure. he's a very... I wouldn't call it a disability, but I would call it um, uh, a situation and a kind of way, a thing that he has to daily overcome. Yeah. But let I me mean, ask, is he, is he traditionally a wheelchair user? No. Okay. No, he's not. Uh, Because the thing is, this is where the, um, you're making the comparisons to Daniel Day-Lewis's My Left Foot, because as the performance he's putting in is very consistent throughout the whole film, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh no, he's he's incredible. He's 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 incredible. I mean, the, 
The st- he gets everything right. The stutter, everything. Oh, the way, even because his hands are all, Paul's hands yeah. are twisted like that. He can't, he can't yeah. open up. He can't, you know. Yeah. Uh, and he was just every single take, yeah. every single take, second to none was usable. He, he never fluffed a line, never got it wrong. I don't know. He's a natural talent and one of the loveliest guys as well to be to be around. He's just um, just a really and because he's. I'm not saying that he's not autistic, but he's just very, he goes yeah. in deeper than most people would. Yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? He it's looks a very granular performance. Like you can feel yeah, the he texture just, of He just life. went in and he studied Paul. He spent weeks with sitting with him uh, and he was OCD about it. And then, but, yeah. when, but, but on the day, the performance is just incredible. I mean, there's still a lot of work still in the film. You've got to remember, this is a tiny budget movie. It's a hundred. Yeah. 150 grand. My war film, the budget for uh, 11 is the budget for Sam Mendes' breakfast menu for one day. <laughs> That's what it is. Nice. Um, so this is a tiny budget. I mean, it was, Daniel's brilliant. We were very lucky because I, I, I was DOP. I, I did a bit of second unit work on a film called Swipe Right for a lovely lady called Jane Lumino. Okay. And Toya Wilcox was yeah. playing uh, a character in her film. Uh, and I turned up with my, ch- I've got a little fluffy chihuahua and my two girls, because often when I'm playing, a, I'm a head of a department and I'm a single dad and it's the holidays, my girls come on set. That's the deal. Yeah. You know, and we got on really well with Toya. And, um, and then when it came to casting, give them wings, um, I, I asked Toya to play the mother and she yeah. plays the mother very well, does a great job of it. And, um, uh, and she's one. We should make a mention of her performance as well, because her character goes through i'm not i don't want to spoil it too much but her character goes through a particular condition as well and she ends up performing as a a character with a disability as well and she does it in a very authentic way i felt yeah and and, and she's wonderful we're very lucky to have her because the thing is it's a low budget film we don't have a list and traditionally and again the film industry has changed it's got well if you haven't got tom cruise playing michael watson we won't give you the money you've got all this you know um but because the platform is different now because it's in your own home because it's easy to get distribution through vod um you don't need in the old days Unless you had a name actor in your film, you could not get the money. Forget it. Who's in it? What name's in it? Now, I'm one of these people that I absolutely champion new talent. It's so important. I I, sometimes, if I see the same person in multiple films, it takes away the the it suspends disbelief. You don't believe it anymore because you know it's this person or that person. So, I really believe it's important to champion new talent. But the but the one thing about the opposite flip side of that is unless you have someone that's going to attract the media to your project we can all make a wonderful film but if nobody knows you made it there's no point in making it so that's 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 the catch 22 and the great thing about toya although she's not hollywood a-list she's a household name so she'll get on the sofa if 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 the sofa's long enough with social distancing sofa distancing She'll get on the sofa with Graham Norton. She'll get on. She'll get in with Jonathan Ross. She'll get on Lorraine or this morning or uh, yeah. Piers Morgan in the morning. She she's got that um, press interest, and this is the biggest role she's ever played by far. Yeah. 
So, um, and, and the most difficult and, and, and um, uh, challenging role she's ever played. So we're very, very lucky to have her. We've also got Bruce Payne in there, who used to be yeah. Hollywood. I was about to say, you got the guy from uh, Passenger 57 and Dungeons and Dragons making a, a cameo appearance. To get the money for the film, you have to sure. sell your mother. So um, <laughs> originally, Paul Hodgson was diagnosed as having meningitis in Darlington. In 1965. In, was that in 1965. Now, we've had to, there was a painter called Vesna Pavan who gave us some money towards the film. And she said, I'll give you a big lump of money towards the film as long as my paintings appear somewhere in the film. And I said, look, oh. where am I going to put these avant-garde pictures in a depressed scenario in Darlington in 1989? How am I going to do this? So the only way we could do it was by putting these paintings in a Harley Street uh, clinic in 1965. And, but, but if we hadn't done that, we couldn't have made the film. So the things that you have to do to, to make the film, and Bruce... I became very good. For, I did a film called Antwerp Dolls. Um, I had a little uh, role there. Played I, his played, I played his brother, Max Farino. I think about Max Farino. I think it was back. I'm in the Ray Farino and Max Farino. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And um, and we clicked. He's a funny guy, man. He's mad as a fucking March hair. Completely out there, but a genius, a brilliant actor, a genius. And um, uh. I don't, don't want to spoil Rendell, but um, he basically plays my dead grandfather in Rendell. And I'll just say one thing. He's not dead throughout the whole film. I've cryogenically frozen my grandfather in the basement. Not too many spoilers. I know, but it's a great, I mean, I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's a great team. And, uh, and they're trying to get someone to play this character. Uh, and, and a real arrogant, real dude. And I said to the producers, I'd already been cast as the lead villain. I said, you've got to get Bruce. Uh, and I brought Bruce on, brought Bruce on to Rendell. Uh, and he, you know, he did, he did very well out of it. And he had a great experience because the Finnish people are just the most, the most wonderful experience. We were treated so well out there. And um, so, you know, he did well out of the film. Uh, and he came along and did a cameo for me for, for you know, for, uh, for free or more or less for free. Um, just to give me a hand. I mean, he's the, again, he's probably the biggest name in the film sure. as far as film is concerned, but the biggest name in the film as far as press is concerned is Toya. So it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice little cast. Also, the guy that plays Ian, Paul's yeah. carer, um, Jacob Anderton, did a fantastic job. I, I thought he was great. Yeah. And um, obviously, we can't give the end away because yeah. Given Wings is 85% reality and 15% yeah. fantasy. Yeah, um, so, it, it yeah. felt like um, there was an element of like a it felt like a Mike Lee film to me in terms of that kind of kitchen sink reality of what yeah. it's like to live in a specific community and being hit really hard with the troubles that life can throw at you. So to yeah, speak, yeah. I mean, it's a it's a very if you if I, I think if you're somebody who hasn't experienced. Um, the, disa the disabled community, um, it's a bit of an eye-opener, I would say, into how that other side lives. And I think if it feels to me that if you are from a disabled community, it manages to address some of the character rather than the stereotypes that are normally portrayed in your traditional hospital dramas. One of the things that people always do is they judge a book by its cover. Paul 
has an IQ higher than mine. He's a very clever man. Uh, and but but people look at him as like, I mean, even I mean, what used to happen with Paul? I mean, I've seen it happen when he's walking with I walking around the market with him a couple of years ago in Darlington, but we're trying to when we're working on the screenplay together, and he's got his carers pushing him along. And people don't talk to him, they talk to his carer. And it's like, dude, talk to the man. This is a man. He's sitting in a wheelchair. So it's a bit of, you know, the preconception uh, of, of, ju- of, of judging people for who they are and not what they appear to be. Sure. Uh, and you touch on that in the film as well, because there's a moment when he's um, going through the street and he meets one of his next door neighbours. Yeah, yeah. And that, 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 that scene was based... She's literally told... That scene, was based, that scene was based on my experience with him in the market. That exact, exactly that thing, not quite the same. We added the comedy sure. element at the end, but that yeah. actually happened to him. Yeah. yeah and and they look, they're, talking, they're talking to the carer and the man's sitting there. It's like, talk to the man, you yeah. know? And there, so, there, was, there was one other thing I noticed. I'm not sure if it was Paul's decision or as your decision as a director, but there, there was a scene where, ta- where tablets get lined up on the table. And... Um, because the character is a football fan, yeah. I'm just thinking at one point it looks like the tablets got lined up in a 4-4-2 yeah, yeah. formation. Okay, that's exactly so what that, that, no, that, that's not that's not script writing. That is what he did. Yeah, that yeah. really happened. I mean, wow. there's only there's two characters in the film that didn't exist, Ethel and Ernest. Okay. And they're based on people in my life. The story really talks about his kind of adult life of trying to find employment, trying to manage the relationship he has with his father and also trying to find a, a way of being independent and and finding his own sense of self-respect in the community, it feels. Would that be a, a fair assessment of the film? Yeah, that's what it is. Give them wings. Uh, and uh, he, 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 was, he was diagnosed at 10 months old when he was a, a tiny baby. Okay. Anything that was wrong. Uh, and uh, you know, obviously, medicine's come on a long way. But yeah, that's exactly exactly what it is. And the relationship between him and his father was exactly that. That's what I mean. His father was so disappointed that you know, because when he yeah. first had the baby, he's in the pub going, "I've had a boy! I've got a bouncing baby boy!" Ten months later, people were laughing at him, and the prejudice and the way that people looked at things in 1989. You know, people we're still struggling with prejudice and racism and crazy stuff now. God knows why. When when will anybody ever learn that we're all God's children? You know, but it's um, uh. You know, the relationship uh, with uh, the son trying to live up to the expectations of the father, that's like a universal story in, that's almost timeless going back to Greek times. Yeah, of course, of course, of course it is. But for him, it was, he was very, very disappointed. And, and if I say that the that, that two characters weren't, didn't, weren't real, Ethel and Ernest, two, he, Ernest is based on one, the taxi driver that used to take Paul to work every day, who used sure. to always help him. And two, my grandfather, who on my father's side, who was responsible for keeping the military on the road during the Second World War. He's one of the sure. first occupying families in Germany after the war. Yeah. Um, uh, I cut a scene out of the film, actually. I had to because one of the actors mm. didn't quite live up to it. But um, the, the scene was, because my grandfather was an amazing inventor. And I go in this workshop, I go, Bloody hell, Granddad, he would fix his own cars. But there's a real-life thing that happened to him. It was actually in the screenplay. It didn't make the final cut. It would be on the DVD. Um, 
whereby their, uh, their Churchill tank breaks down on the road in Germany or the, when they're occupying. And he actually fixes the fan belt with a pair of ladies' tights. And um, that's what my grandfather was like, that he could fix anything out of anything. So Ernest's character is based on him. He can make anything out of anything. And he's, you know, he's a mad, a crazy inventor. So, yeah, but that, that's what it was. And, and, and also Ernest is kind of his surrogate father until, uh, until attitudes change. So, yeah. Because his character is kind of there to serve Paul as like a kind of a light or a beacon to say, this is what the green pasture the grass mm. is green on the other side. So what are your hopes for, for Give Them Wings like over the next well, six months? Perhaps? Look, it's, it's very, very, very difficult. The, 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 we can all, everybody enters film festivals all over the world. You know, you can win the Bognor Regis Film Festival, Bognor Regis Film Festival, all that. But there are only a few festivals that really matter. There are Oscar qualifying festivals. There are BAFTA qualifying festivals. So the, the corridor that we're going down is the festival route now. We missed Cannes by, ten, by a day. I just couldn't get it out. It was a machine. I'm going, computer, export, and it wouldn't do it. <laughs> and we missed it by a day. We just got it into Venice. It's been knocked back by Venice temporarily um, because there's a couple of things they didn't like about it, which I'm currently changing. Are you having editing problems at the moment? Could you let us know what kind of editing issues have come up? Well, uh, so editing a feature film, is extremely difficult. I explained, I explained Dom earlier on. Imagine trying to get a thousand sheep into your toilet, right? Right. So you've got all this stuff. You've got thousands of clips, audio clips, special effects, sound effects, and you've got to get them all into this timeline, and you've got to get them all. Then when you export the film, it's three, it's two and a half hours long. It's 300 gigabytes at full race. And it takes 36 hours to export. Full res is how much for you? 4K? Uh, we, we shot this on Ari Alexa. So full res on this one will be, I think, 3.5K. Okay. Um, the delivery will be, be at 2K. But then, so I've got this thing, like, I've got till the end of the week now to resubmit to, um, to, uh, to Venice with a few changes they asked for and just a couple of, you know, there was a few, not errors, it has to have passed QC. There's pops, you've got, you know, you, you never understand how many tiny little things that go wrong with the film and the sound. There'll be a little bit of rustle of the mic or a pop or a click or a, or a, a modern telephone. Somebody's got their mobile phone on, but there's so many little things to fix. So I'm just doing this final final pass on it on the high res version now it's super high res i've got a powerful machine but even then there's always lag there's, there's always issues with it so I'm, I'm just going through this thing now and then we've got this 300 gigabyte file you've got to digitally transfer this film you've got to get it down to at least the maximum 10 gigabytes otherwise you know where can you upload a 300 gigabyte file so the, the first export then you have to compress it, recompress it, compress it, and get it right the way down. So it still looks brilliant, but it's small enough to digitally transport, you know. So, um, uh, I mean, I'm kind of against 5G for the obvious reasons, but I kind of need it to upload my shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's um, one of those weird things. So, and also editing, we shot this very well. The DOP, I stole the cinematographer from Rendell. Um, I just, he was such a funny guy. And he was so nice. And because they were speaking in Finnish, we had this amazing gaffer called Antero. Antero is the DOP. And they would whisper in Finnish 
And I'm a DOP. I know my shit. But this guy's like a Picasso. He paints with light. A bit like, it reminds me of Adrian Biddle, his style. And, um, and because they were conferring very quietly in Finnish, so I thought, well, they might, I don't know what they're saying, so they must know more than me. So, and, and they, were, they just went, went a lot about things in this amazing, you know, terror would go, and then enter would go, and then three minutes later, I go, what? Wow! And I, my nipples would explode with delight. But um, so I brought Tarot, again, Tarot, Tarot's only ever done really high-end action stuff. Sure. So for him to do a, a, a human interest story like this was very important. In fact, even the, the one I'm doing now is not going to be graded. I haven't got time. I've got to the end of the week. And then I'm going to collect for output. I'm going to send it over to Finland uh, on the hard drive to do the final grade for the final release. Um, because... The festivals are fine, but once it's immortalised forever, it's got to be as perfect as it can be for a £170,000 movie. We had a big, lot of big challenges. Like, we needed roads lined with 1980s cars, but we just didn't have the money. So, yeah. there's, you know, you will... It is a small film, but it's it's small film in the same way as I, Daniel Blake, is a small film, or, or My Left Foot. It's got those kind of vibes, but it's also got the Billy Elliot kind of feel-good Thing. So although it's, it, you've done some nice touches with it because it's a period drama and you've got the, the roll dial phones, you've got the old jumpers, you've got even some uh, authentic 1980 soundtrack, including um, Queen's Radio Gaga. Yeah, we actually have the rights to that, which is great. The, the reason we got the right, because now normally that would cost most of our budget just to get that song. Luckily, the godmother of my children is Serena Taylor, who's Roger Taylor from Queen's Wife, and Roger's their godfather. So with that, uh, um, I directed Serena in 11. She plays my wife in 11. I directed her a couple of years ago in Shaw, and we clicked, became great friends. She met my girls. She knew that as a struggling actor, filmmaker, director with two girls that have never met their mum, they can't. She felt a bit sorry for this dodgy old villain. And she said one day, she said, have they got a godmother? I said, no. She said, well, would you like me to step in? But the great thing is we go to, we've been to Roger's mansion and make no mistake, it's a mansion. There's a 60-foot <laughs> statue of Freddie Mercury by the pool. Excellent. And every so often my dad's, my kids go, my girls go, hurry up and die, dad, so we can go and live with Roger oh, Tucker. Come on. <laughs> ah, really, I'm joking, but um, uh, she's been great. She's very supportive. And, that, they, they, you know, they, they haven't seen us since lockdown, but she yeah. takes them out on a crazy adventure once every year. Um, few months and they've been to see Queen live uh, with her and stuff so and we're very lucky to get the rights to that for just the agency fee so it's great to have a song of that magnitude on there also the guy that did the score for um because everyone said oh you need lots of emotional cheesy piano or you need 80s rock I said no no we don't we need bubbly original score and the guy that did our score Guy Dagul did last, he was the orchestrator on Last of the Mohicans. He's an amazing composer, and he also did um, Eleven for me. Uh, and he's an amazing guy, and Nicolette Street as well did a lot of the, um, of, of the playing and stuff and writing on it as well. So had a great team, but it's a tiny budget film, so we've got to win hearts and minds, we've got to win festivals, and we've got to, to get on TV because this it's not advertising. We're not going to worry about seeing posters on the motorways or big stingers on TV. It's going to be social media that, that builds this film, but it can't just be in my 5,000 friends thread. 
it's got to be in everybody's throat. So the trick is now is to find a distributor that's, that's going to put some money behind it to, to make sure that everyone knows we've made an important film, you know. Um, I mean, something very important here. So the, what we have here is the most important. Oh, kids. This is Konnichiwa. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's, he's a Chihuahua. He's also doubles up as a phone. Hello. He's got, <laughs> he's got MP, Wii, Pro SP, Yellow Tooth and Wi-Fi, and the battery lasts two days. Um, <laughs> and he's actually, I directed a, a thing, a pilot for, for uh, targeted for Disney, and he okay. plays the lead in it. And it's, quite, it's called Wow. I'll show you. It's quite funny. Where can we find you online? People who are interested in finding out more about you. Well, I'm lazy with social media because I'm old. So I do a lot of real life. I like phone calls and stuff like that. But I've got Facebook. I've got a Facebook fan page. I've got Twitter, which I don't really use. It's uh, Sean P. Cronin at Twitter. I'm on Instagram, Sean Cronin actor. Again, I'm not press prolific as I should be. But I've done a deal with my daughters because they're really good at social media. So for pocket money, they're going to help me run it. Um, we have a wonderful publicist, Kathleen, Kathleen, Catherine Lynn Scott at London Flair PR. So she will be our main portal. Catherine has been, uh, films that she's represented have been nominated or have won Oscars for the last five years running. So wow. she is the lady that's helping us down that corridor. This, she's normally won, uh, or her clients have won Oscars for short films, and this is the first feature film that we are going to try and navigate down that corridor. And now, obviously, we're up against massive studio movies with multi-million budgets, and invariably, it's very much a closed shop. But, you know, it's about getting people to be aware of the film. So, yeah, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, all of those things. We're pretty, I'm pretty easy to find. When you, there's the Spanish Sean Cronin's out there, but you'll, you'll recognise the ugly man. Um, I think so. Um, so yeah, uh, you can find me on any of those. I always answer questions if anyone wants to to ask. And um, we're going to be giving away. Like, we're try, I'm actually doing a, a crowdfunding campaign to try and get Bogeyville. I mean, I got I got most of the money for Give Them Wings with crowdfunding, but then the investors came in off the back. So I'm very visible on social media. You can find me pretty much anywhere, and I'll, I'll always say hello. Well, I really appreciate the time that you spent with us, Sean, and uh, thanks for coming on board uh, Geeks for Inspiration Interview. I feel inspired already. It's been great fun, uh, and thank you for bringing, you know, bringing everyone together and, and, and helping inspire people. I really appreciate that too. Cheers. That was our Geek Sweat inspirational interview. Thank you to my co-presenter, DJ. I've been King Dog, and huge thanks to Sean Cronin. Thank you. Pleasure, guys.